This morning I may proclaim to you the word of our God as we find it in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Luke 7, beginning at verse 1, where our text reads as follows, Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. That's our text. In response to the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing together Psalm 33, stanzas 2, 5, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, at the start of basic training, boot camp, the drill sergeant has a fresh set of military recruits in front of him. The protocol is that he bellows out a set of instructions as to how it's going to be during camp. He shouts with all the force and the intimidation that he can muster wants to make clear he's top dog. He is in charge. Somewhere in that preliminary tirade, there's the line, and when I say jump, you say how high. Now whether or not this exchange at boot camp actually happens or is perhaps a bit of mythology is up for debate. Yet we understand well the lesson here. The word of the sergeant is final. Well, if you think about it, however, it is probably even more authoritative to say, and when I say jump, you jump. That is, no questions, no talking back, you just 
jump. Obedience to that command would give an even clearer picture of respect for authority. Well, in our text for this morning, brothers and sisters, we find a centurion who understands the power of the spoken word when it comes from the mouth of a superior. Commands from the mouth of of a government official don't get questions, they don't get talking back, they get results. And this centurion of our text believed that this applied equally so to Jesus of Nazareth. The centurion believed that Jesus was Lord, and so he saw the authority of God himself in this man. And the reaction that this centurion receives is far different than what a military recruit might receive. Instead of the Lord Jesus saying, well, that's what you were ordered to do anyway, he commends the centurion for believing, believing not in himself, but in his Lord. Christ, we're going to see, looks with favor upon all who live by faith alone in him. That's the reason why I chose this passage for today, because yesterday, if you recall, was the day on which the church celebrates and remembers Reformation Day. That was the time where the Reformation began so many years ago, 1517, and the Reformation rediscovered a number of key doctrines, one of which was the matter of believers are righteous before God, not on account of works, but by our faith. So this morning, I want to proclaim to you God's word with that as our focus. The Lord Jesus commends those who humbly believe his authoritative word. We're going to see two commendations. One, a commending of the worth of works. Secondly, a commending of the trust of faith. The Lord Jesus commends those he praises, he marvels at those who humbly believe his authoritative word. We'll consider firstly a commending of the worth of works. Our text this morning marks a transition in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. You see that already in the opening verse. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. The sayings that Luke mentions here are what we read together, partly, in Luke 6, the so-called Sermon on the Plain. That sermon he preached very conscious of who he had before him in the pew. Leading up to that time, our Savior had accumulated a sizable group of disciples Some were men who left everything to follow him. Others were following out of curiosity. Still others were following to either witness or to personally experience his miraculous power. So for that sermon, he had, as it were, a mixed bag of disciples in front of him. His objective in that sermon then was to paint the picture of a disciple as Christ defines him. 
Christ preaches the Beatitudes in verses 20 through 26. The picture that emerges there is that the blessed one, the true disciple of the Lord, is the one who has sorrow over his sin. He sees his own spiritual poverty. He hungers for a righteousness he himself can't achieve. He weeps over his sin. The Lord goes on in verses 27 and following to portray a disciple as one who loves his enemies. And then in the closing words of his sermon, our Lord speaks to us on the matter of faith. The Lord's disciple follows the Lord and does what the Lord tells him. So this, for our purposes this morning, is the nature of the Lord's sermon on the plain. And you and I are given absolutely no time to wonder just how that sermon was received. Matthew's account tells us that the crowds were astonished. Luke shares with us a different kind of response. He gives a moving illustration of the kind of disciple Jesus looks for. Capernaum is a city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was the main city in that area of Israel. It was a very busy place. It was an agricultural center with all kinds of gardens and fruit trees. And with the Sea of Galilee at the one end of the city, well, it boasted a fishing industry as well. It was a beautiful place to live, surrounded by beautiful hills and looking out upon the sea. It was, you may know, an important place in the Lord's ministry. He did a lot of his work here. He taught here, cast out evil spirits, and healed many from their diseases. Well, he now returns to Capernaum, and he has this golden opportunity to illustrate his sermon. He has a centurion looking for him. Centurion was a very important military man. It took a soldier up to 20 years to work his way to the rank of a centurion. He moved up those ranks through being tested, tested in his loyalty, strength, courage. He had to prove himself. He had to show he could fight as well as follow commands, as well as lead. Great was his responsibility. Skills had to be many. His character had to be exemplary. For once he became a centurion, he had full care of his century, which was a group of roughly 100 soldiers. He had to train these men for battle and lead them during battle. So a centurion was a man of strength and a man of integrity. Now this particular centurion is not actually a part of the Roman army itself. Capernaum at that time was under the authority of Herod Antipas, Luke 3 verse 1. This centurion was under Herod's orders. 
Yet Herod didn't owe, did owe rather his position to the Roman emperor. And it was the wish of Rome that armed forces be stationed at border posts such as Capernaum. So, this century informed the military backbone of that city, maintaining peace, carrying out orders from his superior. This particular centurion has a serious problem. He has a servant who was very dear to him. It's quite something when you consider that slaves were generally abused by their masters and often replaced if they became sick and near death. Well, not here though, but the servant is sick on death's door. The diagnosis is terminal. And yet not all hope was lost. The extent of this centurion's affection for his servant leads him to the Lord Jesus. Verse 3 says that the centurion heard about Jesus. It comes as little shock to us given that growing amount of attention and interest the Lord Jesus was attracting in that region. The centurion has heard and apparently believes that Jesus has the power to heal. And so in fine, in fine soldier fashion, he delegates some elders of the Jews to find Jesus and ask him to come and heal his dying servant. He recognizes Jesus as one who can deliver from death. Already here, we get a glimpse of his faith. Faith in the power of Christ to save. Well, brothers and sisters, how is it that the Jewish elders of Capernaum honor this man's request and go on their way to Jesus on his behalf? Jews typically hated and feared foreign centurions. Centurions were part of the occupying army. They were imposters. They were unclean. And centurions, for their part, didn't really show a whole lot of respect for the locals. So this man has all the cards stacked against him when it comes to being acceptable to the Jews. Yet, this centurion successfully directs the elders to be his representatives. It's very remarkable. And our text makes clear that the reason for this is that the centurion has a very good rapport with these elders. They deeply respect him. But when they come to the Lord Jesus, they beg him earnestly on the centurion's behalf. Verse 4, they said that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, worthy. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Wow, what a glowing recommendation. So this is why the elders like this Gentile so much. 
This is why they go to bat for him. As far as they're concerned, no one should fear or hate this centurion. He was deserving, they said, literally worthy of helping. Unlike most of his brethren, his Gentile brethren, this centurion loves the nation of Israel. He's got a soft spot for the people, especially those in need, like this servant. He doesn't make social distinctions. He doesn't attach stigmas to some groups. He's got this real fondness for the nation. So, and that's to say that he has a high regard not only for the people, but also for their customs. He has respect for God's law. This centurion loves the people of the covenant. So much that he even built a synagogue for them. Centurions made a lot of money. If you consider that a denarius was about a day's wage in those times, and a centurion made at least 3,750 uh, denarii a year, in some cases twice as much, well, then he certainly has enough money to raise up a synagogue. But notice how remarkable that is. It would almost be like our current premier pulling all the strings and raising all the finances to build a reformed church in downtown Ottawa. That's an absurd thought, isn't it? But the centurion made that happen. The elders, brothers and sisters, want to show to the Lord Jesus the centurion's friendship with the Jews and his generosity toward them. Gentile and Jew are getting along here, so the elders commend the man as worthy of Jesus' attention. It's all rather interesting, isn't it? From the elder's perspective, Jesus has every reason to, get, to grant this centurion's request. He cares for the helpless. He's generous financially. He's competent militarily. He's one of the good guys who is worthy of Jesus' attention and of his healing power. You owe it to him, Rabbi. One good turn deserves another. His works are commendable. And so we have another, another insight on the pages of the New Testament into the theology of the Jews. Their language is the language of merit, worthiness of earning divine favor and blessing. That's their belief system, a system inherited in many ways by the medieval church heading into the Reformation. Well, do we shudder at their thinking? Are we embarrassed by their theology? I suspect so, and so we should. 
At the same time, their theology is not completely foreign to how we think at times. How often do we think that if we live a life pleasing to the Lord, that he's beholden to us, that he must bless us? How often do we think that people who do good things for others deserve to have good things done for them? Or how often do we think that if we live right before the Lord, that he will be good to us? If we do good things for God, if we participate in church activities, support the church, have the right doctrine, pray and visit the sick, pray for and visit the sick and needy in our midst, then shouldn't he bless us with long life, financial stability, a good family? Shouldn't he answer our earnest prayers to him specifically as we'd like? Our minds can turn the same way as the elders of our text. But brothers and sisters, no one can earn the favor of the Lord. This centurion could have shown all the hospitality in the world. He could have loved as hard as he strived to do. He could have given all the money he had to the church in order to raise up places of worship. He could even get all of his doctrine right. And so could we. We could have the best credentials before men. But when it comes to our worthiness before the Lord, the worth of our works is zilch. It's just not how the God of sinners operates. In our pride, we think we can be good enough for the Lord and that he will grant us the desires of our hearts if we're faithful to him. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Before God, worthiness isn't even part of the equation, especially when it comes to our eternal destiny. The Apostle Paul says it the clearest in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. The standard of God is perfect righteousness. And in the face of that standard, our works in this life are worthless. No one is worthy. No one but the Lord Jesus. So when God comes to our aid, rescues us, saves us, delivers us, it can and never will be on account of our work or even on account of our orthodoxy. But on account of his grace and mercy in Christ, knowing that we also have to believe that, live that, And so we come to our second point where we see the Lord commending the trust of faith. Verse six, 
starts by saying, then Jesus went with them. That's beautiful. He doesn't get into this whole discussion of worthiness versus unworthiness. With compassion, he simply goes. The desire of his heart is to rescue people from sickness, from sin and death. He said later on, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came with the sense of duty, yes, but duty that was compelled by a heart for the helpless and the lost. So there he goes. But the main activity of our text, brothers and sisters, doesn't take place where we would expect it. We expect Jesus to heal the suffering servant at his bedside. After all, that was the command from the centurion in verse 3. He sent the elders to find Jesus and ask him to come. While those elders are out looking for Jesus, the centurion, well, he gets cold feet. He's had a bit of time to think. And what he gets is this growing conviction of his own unworthiness. So he sends out some friends to meet Jesus. And on the road to the centurion's house is where the critical moment of our text happens. On his behalf, his friends say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Yes, indeed, the centurion has cold feet. Before, he wanted the elders to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. Now, he says, I'm not worthy to have you come. Well, some say it's because he didn't want to make the Lord Jesus unclean by entering a Gentile's home. But in verse 7, the centurion said he would not come to Jesus either. So this is not some ceremonial issue here. No, it's a personal matter. This man felt completely unworthy before the worthiness of the Lord. This man believes it, that Christ is someone great and powerful, someone sent obviously from God, who acts by God's authority, so he makes his appeal as a beggar for grace. He's like that toll collector in the temple, stands far off and can't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beats his breast and cries, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Notice still that while the centurion doesn't feel worthy himself to stand directly before Christ, he still seeks him out. There still is a certain measure of boldness, for he knows somehow that he can appeal to the Lord for help. So through his friends, he says in verse 7 and following, But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. Still to another, to my servant, do this. And he does it. Well, that's a profound insight into the faith of this Gentile. 
The centurion knows all about how the Roman military system works. He knows where authority ultimately comes from. Emperor, all are under that authority. The centurion, we said, was under the authority of Herod Antipas all the way up to the emperor. But the centurion was not only under authority, but also in authority. He had foot soldiers under him. So when he spoke to a foot soldier, he spoke with the authority of the emperor. Any commands were obeyed. So now the centurion says, this is what my little world looks like. I know what it means to have authority and power on a small scale. But I see that your authority is something far more significant. You too are working under somebody else's authority. Yes, under God's supreme authority. And so you are a man under authority. But your superior, well, he's far greater than mine. He has authority over life and death itself. Well, so it has to be with you. You are vested with his authority. When you speak, he speaks. So just say the word. No matter what the distance may be, my servant will most certainly be healed at your command. The centurion's only hope is a trust in the goodness and the power of the Lord Jesus. He knows himself unworthy and helpless. He turns away from himself and appeals to the Lord. It's incredible. Indeed, that's also how the Lord Jesus reacts. Verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. From a distance, without even seeing he marvels at the faith of the centurion. Well, isn't that marvelous? The only other time in Scripture that we are told that Jesus marvels is in Mark 6, verse 6, where he marvels at a lack of faith. But this centurion is the only person the Lord marvels at positively. Just think about that for a moment. How could he marvel? He's God after all. He knows the end from the beginning. As a matter of fact, he himself was so often the very object of other people's marvel. He marveled at his words, his miracles, his authority. So how is it that he could marvel? Well, as we know from our confession, from Scripture, not only is Christ true God, and as such is able to heal from a distance, but he's also true man. There were events in his life that brought him to marvel, to wonder, to be amazed, astonished. This man amazed him. And he makes that very clear. The Lord Jesus turns about, turns his face to the crowd that was following him, same crowd of people as before, 
makes a point of saying to them, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. What's the Lord Jesus doing here, brothers and sisters? He obviously wants to teach the crowd here something, but what is it? Well, it's this. This centurion is the living, breathing illustration of Christ's sermon on the plain. In that sermon, remember, Christ held out the life, the profile of a disciple. The disciple is humble, he's remorseful, he's repentant from his sins. He has a love as well for his enemies, for those who loathe him. And that disciple is one who builds his house upon the rock. This centurion, does he not fit that description as well? He's filled with humility. He had a a position of stature and authority. He had wads of money, but full of pride and smugness, he wasn't. He sees who he is, that he's totally unworthy to have Jesus come under his roof. This is evidence of a transformation in his heart God was working in his heart, prompting humility, also love. You see in this centurion a great love for his slave. You see a great generosity toward the Jews. This is a Gentile soldier. He's despised by many in that nation. Yet he has a deep affection for those who were foreign to him and for the most part hated him. That's a love that's not normal. It's supernatural. Unconditional. The work of God in his heart. And most to the point, this centurion is also the one who builds his house upon the rock. He saw his own poverty, his own unworthiness, He was willing to take Christ at his word with total confidence in the authority of his command. But the most marvel-worthy thing of all, this is a Gentile. He was outside the covenant community. Like how Paul writes, he didn't have the promises He didn't have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. All he had were the empty hands of faith, the trust of faith. He knew how Christ could heal. He knew Jesus spoke on behalf of God, and so he knew the command of Jesus, even from a distance, that was enough. This centurion, this Gentile, took Christ at his word. This is what the Lord Jesus commends, and we understand why. But what a humiliation for Israel. For him to give his sermon on the plain and then to illustrate that sermon with this Gentile, this soldier, well, that's just not even only a humiliation of Israel 
That's a very serious admonition of Israel. He says it. I haven't even found su- I haven't found such faith even among God's covenant people. Those elders who came to him would have felt this most pointedly. They came believing Christ is going to pull off a miracle. They expected it because of the centurion's worthiness. They commended his works. But Christ says, no, you have it all wrong. Faith is where it's at. Faith based not on works, not on the thought that I will help you based on who you are or what you've done. Rather, faith based on the trust that I will help you in spite of who you are and what you've done. Humble faith, beloved. That's your life. When we today lose sight of the sovereign authority of our Savior, we put him on equal ground as us, and we get caught up in ourselves. We think he is obligated to come to us serve our needs because we're worthy. But whosoever of God's children remains proud of who he is and what he's done cannot be saved. God opposes the proud. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 verse 5. But When we meditate on the greatness of Christ, all he has done, all he is worth, let that prompt renewed sense of unworthiness in our own heart. Let our pride vanish, our status and accomplishments become meaningless, and let us become humbled. Spirit brings us to see how great our Lord is and how unworthy we are that we are needy beggars. We see that we don't deserve his grace. Let that drive us forward to repentance, to again find our worthiness in Christ. Let it drive us to the cross. For that's where the man of authority submitted himself to the greatest authority, God himself, So that, yes, we might again find our worthiness in him. And this thought drives us to to the profession of that authority of Christ's. And drives us to a trust of faith that he will help. That he will commend us. Because he takes delight in the sinner who daily repents and believes that the Lord bears true power and authority. Yes, Jesus Christ, you can believe it, praises humble faith. Will you trust him as the centurion has? Well, Then he will also give you the strength of faith to accept whatever he gives you in this life. In our text, he grants healing. The Lord spoke a word, and the servant became well. 
Christ was there to restore life with the word. He was also there to create life with the word. Jesus Christ was in the beginning. He was the word. And that word spoke the world into existence. Psalm 33, we're going to sing in a moment. Christ performs miracles through the word. He changes our lives through the word. His apostles, they later saw this very clearly in their work. That the gospel of Christ is not strictly a content but it's also very much a power. The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 1 verse 16. Christ changes hearts and lives by his word and he blesses those who believe him. For the Lord, yes, he does crown a humble faith. We don't always see it that way. We pray in faith that he might restore our loved one to health, but nothing changes or it worsens. But also this, we confess, is for the benefit of our faith. Also this hardship serves to bless what faith we have by strengthening it all the more. Blessing does come to those who believe in the Lord. As the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. So brothers and sisters, one question. Works or faith? What would you rather have your Savior marvel at? Believe his word, no questions asked, and be sure that you are healed forever. Amen.